Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're bringing you some listener mail. Actually, Carney's bringing some listener mail. And I've been wondering if Carney's uh, got something weird going on. I, I think he might have become conscious recently. And I'm not quite sure how to tell, but I'm getting some vibes. <laughs> Well, uh, it, it makes sense because he does read all of the listener mail. And uh, a lot of the listener mail that's come in has uh, revolved around our, our episode on the, the, the idea of machine consciousness. Right. P-zombies and, and whatnot. We will definitely explore some of that today. But, of course, we've got to also get to some farts, some migraines, some Cambodian stegosaurus and lots of other fun stuff. Yeah, we've, we've really uh, dished out a variety of, uh, of topics in the last uh, month or two here. Is there any way we couldn't start with the Fardonomicon? I think that's where we must begin. <laughs> in fact, Carney himself is, is insisting. Well, it, yes. It, I mean, it is, one of the, we, it is the topic that we know everyone can relate to. You might not be that interested in, in AI topics. Uh, you might not be that, uh, that interested in dinosaurs. But you cannot help but have some level of investment in the topic of flatulence. All right, Carney's bringing uh, one over here right now. This one is from Marco. He writes, Dear guys, the part of the fart episode where you calculated the amount of gas we expel each day reminded me of this, the greatest paragraph in 20th century literature <laughs> from Samuel Beckett's 1955 novel, uh, Malloy. I'm not familiar with this novel. Uh, no, I haven't read it. Read it. Okay. Uh, but here, here's the quote. And in winter, under my great coat, I wrapped myself in swaths of newspaper and did not shed them until the earth awoke for good in April. The Times literary supplement was admirably adapted to this purpose of a never-failing toughness and impermeability. Even farts made no impression on it. I can't help it. Gas escapes from my fundament on the least pretext. It's hard not to mention it now and then, however great my distaste. One day I counted them. 315 farts in 19 hours, or an average of over 16 farts an hour. After all, it's not excessive. Four farts every 15 minutes. It's nothing. Not even one fart every four minutes. It's unbelievable. Damn it, I hardly fart at all. I should never have mentioned it. The words of uh, Samuel Beckett. <laughs> Dignity echoing through my brain. You know, this reminds me too that I, I believe we heard from another listener who pointed out some tidbits about Andre the Giant's farts that are apparently mentioned in the recent HBO documentary about Andre. Oh, yeah? And uh, there is a tie-in to Samuel Beckett there as well because there are these stories about how Beckett used to drive Andre to school. So I assume that the story is they're thunderous. Are they thunderous? That Yes. If there's a story about Andre, you know it's about him doing something to uh, gigantic proportions. You know, I've always had a kind of weird fascination with this kind of mentality, the, the character that's being described in the novel here, the kind of uh, unstoppable uh, quantitative curiosity about the <laughs> machinations of your own physical body. It makes me think of Santorio Santorio, right? The guy who weighed everything that he ate and then oh, yes. everything that came out of him for, I can't remember, it was like a year or something, a long period of time. Yeah, Make every aspect of your life a science experiment. Another interesting aspect about all this uh, that comes to mind is the, the fact that, of course, most of us do not sit around counting and numbering um, our 
farts. Uh, but you're saying we should. Well, it, it makes me think about the future of um, of biotechnology. Mm. You know, used to to keep keep a real time. Uh, uh, tabs on our health. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes sense that there will be a fart counter at some point, and it's going to have like a share to Facebook button. Like, <laughs> I farted forty two times today. Yeah. Tell your friends. Yeah. Well, I wonder. You'll probably have the the two categories, right? The people who share out an exceedingly low number, and those who share out an exceedingly high number. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see see how that works because it it does seem like the basic kind of biometric that will be recorded by these devices. And, uh, and 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 it, it'll, it'll for some of us it'll be like uh, hitting that screen on a video game where it tells you how many hours you devoted to playing it. You're going to be uh, perhaps oh, no. a little astounded <laughs> at how many uh, how many farts passed you by. That is a profound insight. It really could it, it could get you that way. I can also see it leading to. Uh, health trends, you know, once you have it quantified in front of you, people are going to start thinking about it, which will make them like create theories about it. Mm-hmm. You know, even if those theories aren't very scientifically informed, it's, there's going to be like the equivalent of fad diets, but for how much you should fart. It's going to be the oil pulling of your butt. Ooh, and then what if our biometric devices have some at least limited form of uh, of artificial intelligence and then they communicate with us and they say things like, Dave, you haven't farted enough today, Dave. Quit holding it in, Dave. It's not healthy. (laughs) Dave, you have bread farts. (laughs) All right, here's our next response to the Fartonomicon episode. This is from Keith. Keith writes, Robert and Joe, I've wondered for a while what the political implications of farting might be. Like, for instance, say there's a meeting between diplomats or leaders and one of them is particularly gassy. Did you come across any examples of how something like this could make negotiations go awry because the other party is disgusted, whether consciously or not? Are there national security protocols surrounding flatulence? I know you touched upon farting in front of royalty in medieval times. But I'm wondering if there are more contemporary examples. Do you think U.S. presidents wear those activated charcoal linings when they meet foreign leaders? For some reason, when I picture a recent meeting between Donald Trump and Xi Jinping, I just imagine them both letting off some serious steam. Thanks for reading. Love the show. Uh, Well, I have a few thoughts on that before we get into any historical examples. First of all, I feel like any world leader, of course, is going to have a security detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the president of the United States is going to have uh, Secret Service uh, agents present. And I feel like I, I don't have any hard data on this, but I suspect that they are there not only to take a bullet for the president, but also to claim any disruptive uh, uh, episodes of flatulence as well. Brilliant. Yeah. They take the reputational bullet. Yeah. They say, oops, I'm sorry, Mr. President. That was me again. So normally you'd blame it on the dog, but now you can blame it on agent so-and-so. Right. But then the dog is a good point, too. There's always a presidential dog, right? And maybe Mm -hmm. that is ultimately the presidential dog's purpose is to diffuse any awkwardness in meetings with with other, um, you know, high-ranking world leaders. I'd never thought about it that way, but but it makes sense. You've got me on the hook. But I believe you have some actual data, some actual historical details uh, well, regarding the uh, uh, disruptive nature of flatulence. Well, I don't have anything good political from recent times. I've got mm-hmm. some older stuff. And I found one example of uh, of a maybe not politically, but at least legally important fart. So in 2008 – a man in West Virginia uh, was pulled over for driving without headlights. I read about this in NBC News. 
He's pulled over for driving without headlights, given field sobriety tests, fails the sobriety tests, and he's being arrested by police. Sometime during his arrest and interaction with the police, he allegedly farted and wafted it toward one of the officers, (laughs) and then he was charged with battery. Ah. Uh, The complaint said, quote, the gas was very odorous and created contact of an insulting or provoking nature, (laughs) which is – that's just cop language to the core. Yeah. Well, I, I was it stick? No, the charges were oh, dropped. Okay. I think it. I think they realized they couldn't make that stick. Yeah. Well, that would it would be a rough precedent to uh, uh, to establish, right? That, yeah. That flatulence is um, is battery. I mean, when you're talking to the police, you're probably nervous, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, there's all all sorts of stuff that's going to come out. So. I, I, I imagine they should be used to it, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I also found a great kind of kind of breezy, fun article in the Daily Beast by the English historian and theologian Candida Moss, which mentions some of the most politically consequential farts in history. <laughs> uh, just a few examples she drew my attention to. One of them is that in the ancient Persian religion of Manichaeism, uh, we, we talked about some other religious implications of farts, but not in Manichaeism. In this religion, farts were holy apparently because they literally believed in what Moss describes as uh, as the idea of an act of freeing divine light from the body. Huh. That's what a fart constituted. Wow, that does remind me of um, of some messaging that I've I've heard in yoga classes before. Uh, in, in two ways, I had a, a yoga teacher once who uh, had everybody get into a happy baby pose. This mm-hmm. is where you you you're on your back and you're you're. Your legs are kind of akimbo, and you're you're holding your your feet, mm-hmm. and uh, and we were, everyone was instructed to let your uh, your anus like shine like a flashlight. <laughs> Um, but then it's also one of the realities of going to a yoga class is occasionally there are toots. I mean, everybody's especially if it's like first thing in the morning, like people are showing up. You're twisting your body into new positions, mm-hmm. and and sounds are going to erupt, and everyone has to kind of handle it with a certain amount of decorum. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes a yoga teacher will will will. I mean, they don't call anybody out, or at least I've never been to a, a yoga class like that. That would be terrifying, but. Uh, but occasionally they will provide some messaging on toots and, and will even encourage it and say that like if, if you toot during yoga class, like that is a good thing. That is – that means that your body is activated by what you are doing. And I, I tend to I tend to like it when there's at least uh, you know some level of uh, – of messaging like that in the class. So it's not – what I imagine when you first said they talk about it is they'd be like, you know, Robert, stop it. <laughs> well, here's the other great thing about about yoga classes. As long as there are more than two people, as long as it's not just you and the teacher, you almost always have plausible deniability. <laughs> uh, so it's the one-on-one classes you need to be worried about. That sounds scary. Or not worried about depending, again, on just how – Clearly, it's established that a few toots are okay. Now, speaking of the master-student relationship here, (laughs) we could also go to the cult of Pythagoras, the ancient Greek philosopher and arguably cult leader. Uh, Pythagoras, apparently, according to some beliefs, he he taught that people should not eat beans. Uh, There's a great great medieval engraving I've got of him. Not engraving. It looks like an illustration of Pythagoras standing across from some fava beans and just holding up his hands like, get out of here with those. (laughs) Do not eat beans. Well, what was his reasoning? He just did not like them or was was it the toots? Well, a possible reason for this is that Pythagoras apparently believed that it was possible to fart out your soul. (laughs) And this makes more sense if you know a little bit about – 
the words in the Greek language for soul. So in the in the Greek language of the time, uh, the words for the spirit or the soul, the, that word was pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, uh, like from the same source that we get the word pneumatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Greek, this was literally the word for breath. But for example, in several books in the New Testament, God or the Holy Spirit is called pneuma, meaning that it's an immaterial spirit or soul, but literally the word being used in the text there is the word for breath. So God is breath. Souls are breath. And of course, to the ancient Greeks, one type of breath was, as Moss points out, a fart. So the idea of farting out one's soul is not necessarily as weird as it first sounds. That, That seems like something kind of linguistically plausible. Oh man, but but also again, it just seems like you're you're working yourself into a corner with this kind of thinking because the farts are going to come, and if you're tying that and tethering it to some idea that you're you're losing some portion of your soul each time, uh, that's just a it's a losing proposition. Yeah, I don't know how that worked out. I mean, that mm-hmm. seems like a like a bad early example of religious body shaming. Yeah, I mean, it, not that different, really, from uh, some of the accounts we we saw where where it was uh, where it was connected to the idea that there was some sort of an evil spirit in you producing this gas. We're really no better than the Pythagoreans now, are yeah. we? <laughs> <laughs> but to demonize beans, I just that that actually surprised me because I I just kind of assumed that beans were going to be okay with any religion or, or weird um, a sect or cult, that there is always going to, to be a place for beans, no matter what other, you know, uh, meats or dairy products that you uh, uh, exclude from your table. Well, yeah. I mean, you got to think, how can you do geometric proofs in the sand if you're not eating <laughs> beans? What do you, what do you, especially since I think it's also believed to some extent that Pythagoras uh, advocated vegetarianism. Mm-hmm. So, you I mean, what, what are you left with? Just leafy greens, I guess. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. All right, but how about um, how about some higher stakes examples here? Okay, one more example that uh, Candida Moss mentions. She draws my attention to this story in Herodotus. Huh. And I, I looked this up. So Herodotus is chronicling a case where a fart supposedly didn't necessarily cause but intensified an ongoing revolt against an Egyptian pharaoh. So you've got a 6th century BCE Egyptian pharaoh named Apries who found out that his general Amasis was had become part of a plot to rebel against the pharaoh and, and crown himself the general king. And so the pharaoh is sending a servant of his named Paterbemis to talk the general down and sort of bring him back into the fold. And here's where I read the quote from Herodotus, quote, On intelligence of this event, the king sent Paterbemis, one of the most faithful of those who yet adhered to him, with directions to bring Amasis alive to his presence. Arriving where he was, he called to Amasis. Amasis was on horseback, and lifting up his leg, he broke wind and bade him carry that to his master. (laughs) Uh, Pharaoh didn't take this well. When the Mm -hmm. message arrived, he was really upset and he was so angry he actually cut off the nose and ears of the servant who delivered it. And this supposedly was so cruel that it actually encouraged more people to turn against the Pharaoh Apries and join in Amasis' rebellion, which successfully deposed the fart-offended king. There's a lesson here in being too uptight about fart humor, I think. You know, yeah. if he had just played it a little cooler, maybe he wouldn't have come off like a, a tyrant and, uh, and and lost some crucial support here. I think that's a deeply astute observation. You you gotta you gotta keep your cool around farts; they can be your undoing. <laughs> um, 
You know, to return to the, the, the question of, of modern politics and farts, and there may be some excellent examples out there, it, uh, we do have to remember that we, we have some fairly awkward and even embarrassing um, meetups between world leaders that, that happen with a, with a fair amount of frequency. Yeah. But people have been vomited upon. Yeah, I'm thinking about – who was it uh, George H.W. Bush who yes. vomited what, at, the, at a Japanese state dinner? Yeah, it was a yeah, Japanese state dinner if I recall correctly. Um, and you know, that th- did not harm to, you know, yeah, relations I mean, between the sick, two countries. People know? know that barfing happens. Um, you know, and likewise, there, there are always awkward handshakes, it seems, uh, in the news. And people work through that. So I can't imagine a fart would be too uh, disastrous these days. Unless, again, tensions were already so high uh, that you were just one fart away from war. Here's an interesting question. I wonder if world leaders have code signals worked out. So imagine they're in a tense negotiation and they need to fart. Do they work it out with their aides that there's something they can do where an aide will come to them and say, we we need you. We need you to come outside for a second for a secure message or something so you can go out in the hall and fart and then go back in and resume having, you know, without quite so much stress in your life. Huh. You know, and another way of looking at it, though, is – that perhaps it is advantageous for a world leader to have like one fart ready mm-hmm. to actually um, di- you know disarm <laughs> the tension in the room because oh, you know, okay. if things get too tense, uh, a fart could be a lifesaver because it's ultimately this humanizing comedic moment, assuming that the individual um, who emitted it is willing to to own that moment and and appreciate the humor of it. You've got to know your enemy. Know yeah. who's across the table from you. <laughs> no, will they take a fart as a fence or or will will it break the ice? Yeah. Quick poll question for for all the listeners out there. What percentage of people have at some point in their life pretended to take a phone call so they could go outside of the room and fart? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that'll I, I look forward to the results on that question. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will jump back in to our listener mail. All right, we're back. Okay, this next one comes to us from our listener, Anna. It's on the Vault episode we recently aired about bird intelligence. Anna writes, Hi, Robert and Joe. I enjoy listening to your podcast. I liked listening to your uh, Vault episode about bird intelligence. One of my favorite examples of bird intelligence is the use of fire. In the northern parts of Australia, birds of prey, kites and falcons, have been seen picking up smoldering sticks, carrying them and dropping them further away. This ignites the bushland and causes insects and rodents to flee. Huh. This bird then eats the fleeing rodents and insects along with its bird friends. These birds have been collectively called firehawks by local aboriginal peoples. They have legends about fire and birds in their culture. Anyway, love your work. Keep it up. Oh, wow. That is that is impressive. That's a, that's some straight-up uh, Jungle Book yeah, stuff right there. that's amazing. I, I looked that up. I was like, not that I didn't believe you, but I kind of had to see it for myself. Uh, so I haven't been able to find, like, pictures of this happening because it, apparently this is something that's been known about by many, especially of the northern Aboriginal peoples of Australia for a long time. But there's only recently been an effort to scientifically document the phenomenon. And the big question is – are the birds doing it on purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we believe, we, we hear all these anecdotes that people have witnessed this, but are they picking up smoldering sticks by accident and maybe they think they're prey or something and then dropping them? Or are they actually intentionally starting fires? Interesting. It'll be yeah interesting to see how that shakes out. I mean, 
I wonder in a lot of different ways how fire can be encoded into our instincts and into our brains in a kind of, at a kind of deep genetic level. I think we talked about this in a couple of episodes we did about fire a long time ago. But there, there's the, there's always the question of like how do you become a primate that starts to master fire? So if you're previously a primate who, you know, for all kinds of good reasons would want to run away from fire. Mm -hmm. Fire is dangerous. You don't want to like sleep next to a big forest fire. Right. But at the same time, fire can give you great benefits if you know how to predict its movements, if you know how to even capture it and use it. So what types of phenomena biologically in terms of behavior and instinct and and natural appetites and stuff like that will actually lead you to become the kind of creature that can tolerate fire, can understand fire, can master fire? Yeah, it's a fascinating question because we don't always realize it, but but fire is part of our natural environment, mm -hmm. and it, it and it has been throughout the history of certainly of surface life on the planet. Yeah, so it it makes sense that uh, that other animals would develop strategies for fire as well, even though the most predominant strategy is going to be, of course, flee from it. Uh, or find safety from it, uh, it does make sense that other creatures might pick up on at least minor ways to uh, benefit from it or manipulate it. In our City Evolution episodes, we talked about the idea of neophilia, right? The idea of animals having certain traits for being drawn towards strange, unusual, unfamiliar objects. And, and a lot of times in nature, that's not a good idea, right? Those objects mm -hmm. can be dangerous. But one can think of fire as a kind of archetype of that sort of object uh, that accompanies both the risks and rewards. Fire can kill you if you don't treat it right, but it can also drive prey your way. Or if you are some kind of early hominid, you could maybe even use it to start more fires and keep a campfire. I just can't help but now imagine a raccoon with a Zippo lighter mm -hmm. and <laughs> all the horrible things that could uh, could transpire because of it. You, it's funny, but, you know, I wonder. Mm -hmm. So give raccoons thousands more years in human cities where people keep discarding cigarette lighters on the sidewalk. Well, it makes me thankful for the, the child light. We, you know, we have our various um, like, uh, you know, charcoal grill lighters, uh, mm -hmm. the sort of long-necked lighters. Generally, you have that two-button combination. Right. And uh, a human child is often incapable of activating it. Uh, but crafty raccoons. I Maybe. <laughs> but, if, but if we did not have that child uh, uh, lock already in place, if it wasn't already childproof, mm -hmm. um, it, would, it would just be ready for the raccoons to, uh, to run wild with. We've got to stop thinking about this. Yeah. We're, going, we're going to a scary place. <laughs> All right. Speaking of a scary place, uh, we have a bit of listener mail here from James on machine consciousness. Uh, James writes, towards the end of machine consciousness and P-zombies, you made a comment to the effect that the advance of artificial intelligence is inevitable and the best we can do is guide it in the right direction. I would argue that the development of the atomic bomb was also inevitable given the state of scientific research at the time and the overwhelming need to win the Second World War. AI and atomic weapons are both fruits of human scientific research. Both have the potential to wipe out the human race. Is it really inevitable that the human race will always pursue scientific research even faced with the risk of self-annihilation. This sounds insane to me and also true. 
Yeah, James, I, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things that, that's kind of scary about the about atomic weapons is that in a sense, you could almost say that they're not invented so much as discovered. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're there. They're there in the laws of physics. They're there in the uh, in the fissile materials that you find naturally in Earth's crust. Uh, I mean, it, it the potential is there and it's just a thing waiting to be discovered by someone who puts a few things together about their observations and realizes like, oh, wow, this is what we could do. Well, it's one of the reasons that self-annihilation factors into uh, our contemplations of extraterrestrial life uh, yeah. because things like this are there to be discovered. And it makes sense that other uh, potentially intelligent uh, life forms would make the same discoveries and risk self-annihilation as well. Yeah, and it's even scarier when you just – when you apply that back to us. I mean mm-hmm. you it makes you realize – we can't ban it, right? You know, we can't just say like, oh, w- we will never allow anybody to create nuclear weapons anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, in a way, that would be a good thing. I would like a world without nuclear weapons. But it's always going to be out there for people to rediscover and do again with materials available on Earth. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think this is largely the, the story of technology. Uh, AI is probably one of the most interesting, uh, uh, you know, contemporary and near future Examples: The atomic bomb is, of course, the the the, the most horrifying example of our time. Uh, but if you look at the 19th and 20th century advancements in chemistry, you see a number of other um, uh, potent examples mm-hmm. uh, producing both the chemistry of life and uh, the chemistry of death. Uh, for instance, uh, German biochemist uh, Richard Kuhn discovered the deadly formula for the chemical weapon uh, Soman in 1944, and that was a mere six years after winning the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his work on life-enhancing carotenoids and vitamins. Uh, sarin gas emerged in 1938 as a German pesticide, and the U.S. military chemical weapon BZ started out as a rejected gastro, uh, gastrointestinal medication. Uh, and this is because during the Cold War, U.S. Army researchers at Edgewood Arsenal would sort through luff, roughly 400 rejected medications a month uh, to find potential weapons. Wow. So in, in, this, in this attempt to discover all these wonderful medications that would enhance our lives, uh, we were, of course, finding things that didn't quite work or outright didn't work because of their side effects. And then who is uh, coming along behind them but these researchers looking for the ones with the side effects that could be weaponized. And then one of the the, 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 the biggest examples, too, uh, is uh, German chemist uh, Fritz uh, Haber won a Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1918 for the Haber-Bosch process. This is the main industrial process for the production of ammonia, and it's essential to the fertilizer industry. But in doing that, he also contributed greatly to the chemistry of death. He's considered by many to be the father of modern chemical warfare. I think you're exactly right about all this, but it, we've just been talking about weapons so far, and this mm-hmm. goes far beyond weapons. I mean, all kinds of technologies that are not even conceived of as weapons are potentially self-destructive or self-annihilating for us. Think about how much good has been done for the world by fossil fuels. I mean, they've brought tremendous productivity, uh, allowed people to create technologies that save lives, that move people around, get them where they need to be, that increase agricultural yields, allow us to feed more people, uh, that give us all kinds of technologies that we're totally dependent on. But now we're seeing like, oops, this comes with a side effect too, just like the risks posed by uh, chemical weapons that come out of all the advances of the chemical industry. We've now got climate change looming on us because of 
all this great stuff we got out of fossil fuels, stuff like this tends to pop up almost in every arena of technology you start to imagine. The more powerful it becomes, the more good stuff it can do for us, the more dangerous it is. Yeah, and we see that uh, today as well in our uh, information technologies and in the potential rise of artificial intelligence. Yeah, I mean, in a much more mundane sense, in a way that's not life-threatening in the way that uh, ultimately climate change or, you know, everyday nuclear weapons are, you might sort of notice that the ways in which social media has become very useful and integrated into our lives tracks pretty closely with the degree to which social media has become a really negative force in people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, here's another one about machine consciousness. This comes from our listener, PJ. PJ says, Hi, Robert and Joe. Long-time listener, first-time responder. I'd like to offer some commentary on your recent discussion of machine consciousness. It's easy to see how we may already be on the slippery slope toward giving computer programs the same rights as people, even without answering the question of machine consciousness. Today we already have virtual worlds where millions of people interact with each other using avatars. Some popular computer games may spring to mind, but even something as ubiquitous as Facebook will work for this hypothesis. These virtual worlds are co-opting an ever-increasing portion of our time, money, and identity. We invest more and more of ourselves into them and spend increasingly more time interacting with others through our avatar than we do in face-to-face encounters. In fact, our digital personas are already measured by how many interactions we have in this virtual world. Metrics such as friends, followers, likes, and page views are already being used to weigh our relative worth on these platforms. We as physical entities are limited in the amount of time we can spend directly improving these metrics. At the very least, we need sleep, and most of us still have important offline responsibilities. But our avatars remain in that world 24-7. Currently, they are mostly inert and passive, but it's not hard to see an advantage in giving our avatar some limited ability to act for us in the virtual realm to represent our interests during our absence. We already have auto-response options that can deliver predetermined messages to those trying to reach us, auto-triggered in response to selected variables. As this trend toward automated avatars continues, our digital selves will begin to take on more of the decision-making load for us, at first in a programmatic way, but perhaps later on in a way that more closely resembles artificial intelligence. After all, we are rewarded for improving our metrics as much as possible, so who wouldn't want time-saving measures that help us do that? Now let's advance the thought experiment to the next level, to a point where the virtual world is on an equal footing with the real world, where the vast majority of all interactions between us are conducted via our automated avatars. Some tech-savvy youths may already be at that point. Again, this is not hard to imagine based on the technological trends we see today. At some point, it will be difficult, perhaps impossible, to tell whether you are interacting with a real person or an auto-responsive avatar. In fact, it may not even matter, as avatars become invested with more information and decision-making power, that they may as well be considered an extension of that person's mind. When someone's avatar responds to you, it is no different than the person responding themselves. It just happens to be in a delayed or pre-programmed fashion while their physical body is asleep or away doing something else. Huh. Someday in the future, will we wake up, check our Facebook feed, and be given a summary of the various interactions our avatars have had online while we were sleeping, get the gists of entire conversations held by our avatar with the avatars of others, see a readout of the many likes and comments given by other people's avatars to the funny memes that our avatar auto-generated on our behalf? 
View the results of the business meetings our avatar attended for us, double-check the tasks it volunteered us to do, and then click a button to have our avatar automatically perform those tasks. In such a world, when somebody's physical body dies but their avatar continues to represent them at 100% functionality, will we have the heart to pull the plug on that avatar? Do we even have the right? What if the real person left instructions for their avatar to remain behind to continue their interests after death? What if the avatar is the one who drafted these instructions entirely on its own, acting as it always has in the best interests of the real person? We're not that far from this situation becoming a reality, and as you can see, it will present some thorny problems even, with our quest, even without the question of consciousness. Thanks for the great shows. Keep them coming, PJ. Well, that was a great bit of listener mail. I, ah, yeah. Uh, yeah, some some excellent points made there. Uh, it, it's interesting, uh, the, the idea of your sort of virtual uh, self uh, that is kind of a, a, a that, that acts on your behalf as a proxy and is kind of a you know representative while you're sleeping etc uh, this actually comes up in Peter Watts uh, novel starfish yeah uh, where you have uh, there's there's one character who keeps trying to get in touch with this uh, very powerful uh, corporate individual mm-hmm. and instead of getting an answering machine each time or an answering service uh, he keeps getting the uh, essentially the the uh, the virtual uh, avatar of that person that okay. is interacting on their behalf uh, and and he doesn't want that he wants to interact with the actual person uh, but it was a, it was an interesting uh, one of many examples in that in that book that that touched on uh, some very uh, realistic possibilities for our our future entanglement with our uh, virtual technology. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I totally I'm I'm with you there. I mean, I can see this happening, and it doesn't. Uh, I mean, it's it's one of those things that appears very troubling from a distance, but as you approach it incrementally, you can imagine how what looks troubling now we'll kind of get slowly accustomed to step by step so that when it's actually the case, you won't see it as all that weird. Yeah, because the, pro- the basic proposition is great, right? Like, are you tired of doing your uh, social media interactions for work, Joe? Then uh, why don't we just have Virtual Joe do it for you and Virtual Joe will just send you a summary at the end of the day, you know? And he's not going to do anything that you wouldn't do. He's not going to do anything that you haven't checked off on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he will take, uh, you know, some of the, the uh, some of the load off your plate here. I think this is a great idea for creating plausible deniability when people create terrible social media faux pas. Yeah. <laughs> so somebody tweets something very ill-advised that they shouldn't have said. They mm-hmm. can be like, no, 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 that wasn't me. That was my avatar. That was automated. Some kind of artificial intelligence malfunction. Yeah. Yeah. The cl- yeah. Clearly, that's what that's what happened. Yeah. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that that either. But uh, yeah, instant uh, plausible deniability on all the worst tweets. Yeah, and God, there's there's so much to to talk about in this this particular listener mail. I mean, certainly, I, I feel like a lot of us have been online long enough now to encounter time and time again the 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 weirdness, the awkwardness, the sadness of encountering uh, a social media profile for somebody who uh, is is no longer living. Yeah, and it's it it doesn't stop feeling weird it it doesn't stop kind of haunting you a little bit yeah whether it's uh you know w- whether it's like a family member or um, or just like a random social media friend whose profile never goes away and occasionally shows up as you know someone else who likes it or follows a particular account um so i could i could see them having if not legally protected status then certainly 
like culturally protected status, you know, the, the, just the idea that of course you wouldn't delete that. Why would you delete this? This is essentially their 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 tombstone. Um, on the other hand, I would say never discount humanity's uh, capacity uh, to limit the rights of their fellow humans or take their rights away if yeah. there's something to gain from it. Well, I mean, that was one of the most horrifying scenarios I think we explored in the original episode is like you can even imagine cases where you have the rights of real actual people in competition with the rights of supposedly conscious virtual entities and these supposedly conscious virtual entities end up trumping the rights of real people. Mm -hmm. And we don't even know for sure that these other entities are people. They, they might be, they might not be. Well, it kind of comes down to the question of, of who's going to decide, right? Because I can, I can think of look – at, look at historical uh, historic, uh, accounts, uh, st historic uh, situations where – one group of people is determined to be uh, more human than the other yeah. or to have more uh, intrinsic rights than the other group. And just imagine those uh, those situations extrapolated into the virtual realm. You could very well imagine a situation where essentially it's like, oh, well, these are virtual bodies. Sure, but these are virtual bodies, some very important um, – Religious individuals, very important. Uh, they're members of very powerful families. Or if they're AI, you could make the case that they get a lot done. These yeah. are job creators, right? These AI entities that you know they're very productive. Yeah. So you could you could see you could you can easily imagine them uh, obtaining uh, uh, a, a, pr a privileged status over very real human beings. At the same time. It's kind of the whole, uh, you know, build your shopping mall in, in, in a Native American graveyard situation. Like, you know, if, if there's if there's some advantage to be taken in uh, in, in pushing virtual bodies aside, uh, then I feel like there are going to be those who will do it. I just hope that they are then haunted. Whatever they're, I, I, I'm not even sure exactly what the example would be, but I don't know the server space. Uh, that they end up uh, um, taking away from these virtual bodies. I hope that the service space is then haunted uh, by those deceased individuals. Yeah, th this area is just full of unresolved problems that I feel like we, we can't even really begin yet to understand how we should prepare for. And yet we've got to start preparing, right? I mean, it's no answer to just say like, ah, eh, we'll deal with it when it comes up, right? Mm -hmm. All right, on that note, we're going to take one more break and then we will come back with more listener mail. All right, we're back. Okay, let, uh, we're going to try to get through a few more at a faster pace yeah. here. Now, uh, this next one came into us from our listener, Teresa, also about the machine consciousness episode. Teresa says, hey, guys, when you were talking about the AI wanting to commit suicide as a reward at the end of its task, it sounded almost like the me-seeks from ah. Rick and Morty to quote from them, existence is pain. <laughs> Just a fun thought I had while listening. Keep up the great podcast, Teresa. All right, so you have not seen these episodes of Rick and Morty yet. No, I, I had people keep telling me that it's full of great scientific concepts that come up on the show all the time, and I would like it, but I still haven't watched it. Okay, well, well, this is a this is a great episode because it, and I and I uh, I can't believe I didn't think of it when I was kind of spitballing about uh, uh, you know annihilation seeking uh, AIs. Uh, the the me seeks are these little blue sort of creatures, technological creatures that uh, pop up kind of like uh, genies and they help you with a problem. But they want to help you with the problem as quickly as possible because they want uh, to then uh, vanish out of existence at the end of the, the problem. So they are kind of the perfect manifestation of what I was talking about. 
Now, even though I don't watch the show, I can imagine that if this kind of technology is established, it surely must go very wrong, right? <laughs> well, it it goes it goes wrong when they are when they are asked to help solve a situation uh, that does not have a, a, a fast and easy solution, uh-huh. uh, because then they are at pains to just labor over it for uh, you know for for days or weeks or months or, or however long to see it accomplished. But you don't have to worry about them rising to power. Uh, afterwards right. and abusing their power because all they want is annihilation. Well, wait, this, this goes back to the first problem we talked about then. You know, we've been talking about the idea of AI parasites, but it's also a problem if there is actually conscious AI and we're abusing them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, in this case, like you've created something with the Meseeks that uh, that have a desire that is uh, that, that runs counter to to living organisms that want to reproduce. They, they don't want to continue their story and their existence or their genetic information. They want uh, annihilation. And if we are denying them annihilation, then, then, then we're the monsters. Right. That's just uh, recapitulating the cruelty of existence all over again. Yeah. All right. This one comes to us from uh, Julian. Uh, this is about our Cambodian Stegosaurus episode. Apparently, we did some literary injustice. <laughs> uh, dear Robert and Joe, I enjoyed your podcast on the underappreciated Stegosaurus. It was always my favorite, di- one of my favorite dinosaurs when I was a kid, and I remember walking on all fours with my butt in the air as the Stego seems to do. Bravo. I, <laughs> I also happen to be a fan of Conan the Barbarian, the movie, and the Robert E. Howard, Robert Jordan, and various other authors who have brought Conan to life. So it was a particularly cool mashup for me. I definitely see the comparison as the Stego and Conan both tend to bristle with spikes and plates. But I would caution against the comparison of Conan and the Stego in cunning and temperament. Okay, then. Well, I get the feeling we're about to have a case made at us. While I can't think of something less important or more pretentious than correcting someone on a dinosaur and fictional character comparison, I feel that Conan's honor must be defended, and by Krom, I will do it. While the Stego is postulated to be a gentle, dim-witted herbivore, Conan is described to be the antithesis of this. I am paraphrasing, but more or less, Conan in Howard's stories is the undiluted primal cunning of nature, poured into the mold of a human being. He has wolverine-like senses and moves like a panther through the forests and plains undetected. He perceives animals and enemies that would be hidden to civilized men. Conan is also, ironically, far more civilized in things such as morality, honor, and chivalry than the various civilized cultures he encounters. He doesn't lie. He risks his life for his allies and the weak, and he never breaks his word, although he does these things while serving his own purposes. He's no goody-two-shoes, but he often does the right thing and doesn't kill people indiscriminately. Conan is also fiercely cunning, often outsmarting his opponents when they outnumber or seek to ambush him. Conan manages to climb to the top of every, quote, pack of wolves that he runs with, although often such as in the story a witch shall be born. He joins such packs of bandits, outlaws, and brigands, while crucified out in the desert and expected to die, let alone lead. Conan is also a poet and composes several poems that are sprinkled throughout Howard's stories, most prolifically in Day of the Dragon and the Scarlet Citadel. 
If you managed to read this far, I am sincerely thankful. Once again, I realize how inane the idea of writing this email is, and surprisingly, yes, I actually do have better things that I should be doing, but every once in a while, you get a spark of something you are passionate about, and you can't let it go no matter how silly. What I hope to have impressed upon you is that despite the size, plates, and spike clubs in common, the lumbering Stego is vastly different from Conan, who was a pirate, a warlord, a thief, a ranger, a king, and has saved the world multiple times from evil wizards and demon gods. I thoroughly enjoy your podcast. Please keep up the good work. If this email was entertaining, let me know. Thanks a lot, guys. Well, I can't pretend to be the expert on Conan that you are, (laughs) Julian, but I do very much appreciate this email. I I like a good pedantic correction on the virtues (laughs) of a fictional character. Yes, indeed. One thing I think about a lot, which you mentioned, is that so Conan, he, you know, he's violent. He can be a brute sometimes. He does a lot of bad stuff. But you mentioned he doesn't lie. I feel like that's key. That That's key in a lot of characters, a lot of antiheroes. Uh, for some reason, you can get a long way toward identifying with somebody if all if, if all you have to do is have them tell the truth. Yeah, there's like there's a brutal honesty to them. Okay, this next email comes to us from our listener, Josephine, also about the Cambodian Stegosaurus episode, but uh, branching off from that into a general suggestion. Now, in the Cambodian Stegosaurus episode, we talked about the outdated idea that the Stegosaurus might have had two brains. Uh, That's not true. That is not something that modern paleontologists think anymore, but it used to be argued. And so we contemplated what would it be like to have two brains, and here's where Josephine writes in. I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now, and I absolutely love the show. I love how you guys approach each of the topics and how open-minded you come across. I'm a first-year architecture grad student who has background in psychology, biology, art, and pre-med studies. I've been meaning to write to you guys for a while to say how much I enjoy listening to the podcast during late nights in the studio. Sometimes it's the only thing that keeps me awake during my way-too-frequent all-nighters. I'm currently listening to the most recent episode on stegosauruses and just had to pause to send this email. So you guys talked a little about the possibility of having two brains or consciousnesses inside one body, and it kind of reminded me of an article I read about the conjoined twins, Christina and Tatiana Hogan, who supposedly share a mind, or craniopagus twins. There was another case where twins claimed being able to see out of each other's eyes to some degree. There have, of course, been various instances of conjoined twins, and I think it'd be a really interesting topic for you guys to explore. You guys do this well anyway, but subtopics like the history of incidences, types of conjoined twins, why or how it happens, separation, would all be neat to hear about. Maybe even talk about parasitic twins versus conjoined twins. Anyway, I hope this is at least some food for thought. Love the podcast. It's been my saving grace these past months slaving away in the studio. Well, thank you're far too kind, Josephine. But I think that's a really interesting idea. Now, Robert, I, I imagine you must have covered this a little bit on the show before, right? You know, I, I, I'm I'm sure it's come up, but I can't recall a specific conjoined twins episode. I'm more, I'm, I do recall – thinking about doing a conjoined twins episode. So maybe mm-hmm. it's one of those that just have, we've never gotten around to. You know, it's something I would definitely want to uh, to handle right because honestly, I can recall when I was younger watching like some TV documentaries about conjoined twins that I feel like were not very – did not approach the subject with the right kind right. of tone. Obviously, this is, this is a very interesting scientific topic, but also, you know, you want to remember people's humanity. And I remember – watching some documentaries about this when I was younger that sort of treated it with a kind of freak show Mm -hmm. mentality. 
Yeah, there's there there is a danger there. I mean, not so much for our coverage of it. I think we could we would handle it uh, in a respectful manner. But even so, like I think we both grew up surrounded by a lot of that, you know. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you, you look at uh, like when I think of conjoined twins in media, I inevitably end up thinking of uh, like a, a Tales from the Crypt episode where mm. the twist is that the, uh, the, the that one of the characters has a conjoined twin, that sort of thing. Or in an episode of The Simpsons where Bart is separated from his conjoined twin and the, the other twin lives in the attic, that sort mm. of thing. And uh, so you have all those sort of uh, freak show motifs competing uh, for attention against the very real human stories involved. And those stories have got to be truly fascinating because this could be – I didn't even think – Think about this option when we were talking about mm-hmm. it in the episode, the idea of having uh, two brains in one body. I mean in a way where you have two people who are essentially sharing a large part of their somatic infrastructure together uh, but but have two separate brains versus people who are actually sharing brain tissue to some extent. Uh, yeah, th- that's got to be one of the most interesting ways to explore the different ways that consciousness can manifest according to your anatomy. Yeah. Um, now, one example, there's certainly no consciousness involved here, but uh, in terms of just two brains and one sp- uh, one organism, there is the example of the anglerfish, uh, mm-hmm. where the, the, the much smaller male anglerfish fuses with the larger female's body. Uh, and then all non-essential parts of the of the male essentially atrophy away. That is a really fascinating example. But maybe you're too quick to dismiss the idea of anglerfish consciousness. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows what the mind of the anglerfish holds? Yeah, uh, I imagine it's it's. I I, I I tend to imagine it's rather simple in its uh, wants and desires. Um, and, and they mostly revolve around light and food. But uh, but who knows? Maybe I'm selling them short. I mean, here's the way I'd put it. When an anglerfish comes at you out of the darkness, would you rather have overestimated it or underestimated it? <laughs> true. Yeah, true. Good, good point. They are rather frightening. All right. Here's one from Mike. Uh, Mike says, gentlemen, I've just recently finished listening to the episode on the I Ching and was left slightly disappointed that you didn't mention its place in pop culture as the tattoo shared by Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow in G.I. Joe. There were probably three other listeners who knew. I have no idea what this is about. <laughs> but well, uh, you know, I had to look it look it up. But and true enough, they do have um, uh, um, uh, they do have uh, emblems from the uh, the I Ching on their shoulders. Wow. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he continues. But probably like me, they've uh, had an interest in the I Ching thanks to the comics, and I really appreciated the episode because of it. Thanks for all the great podcasts, and keep it up. You make my commute in the morning much more tolerable. But yes, true enough. These two uh, ninja characters from G.I. Joe do have I Ching hexagrams uh, on their body. Uh, I'm not sure which specific hexagrams they have. I would hope that they are aligned with, uh, you know, uh, productive or destructive movements according to their classification as either either a G.I. Joe ninja or a Cobra ninja. But uh, I'm not sure off the top of my head. The wind turns. The experienced commander waits. (laughs) Go, Joe. Go, Joe. We also heard uh, from a listener in India, uh, Bhargav wrote in about our hyper, hyper-real religion episode, which we recently uh, featured as a vault episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said, hello from India. I'm a software programmer living in Bangalore. I love listening to your shows, both uh, Stuff You Should Know and Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I recently listened to one of your episodes about hyper-real religions. I like the way you discussed the stuff about the religion of, uh, of uh, FSM and Jedi. I thought I'd share one more local parody religion for my own country. It is called 
Dinkoism. <laughs> Dinkoism is based on a comic character who is a superhero who lives in the forest. The character is from a comic that used to be published in a magazine called Bala Mangala. This kid's magazine used to be pretty famous in southern parts of India when I was a kid in the 90s. He is known as Dinkin in Malayalam and Dinga in Kannada. Uh, thought it might be good to share this one. Keep up the great work. Uh, P.S. Attaching an image of our almighty Lord and Savior. Thanks in regard. Uh, so this is a cartoon mouse that I get the feeling is basically along the same lines as the role played by the flying spaghetti monster. It's right. It, it's it's mainly, from what I can tell, just on reading a few things about it on the internet, mainly a parody religion created by skeptics to satirize uh, religious invasions into politics and uh, by by mainstream religions. Right, and uh, in one, if you look at the cartoon character, you definitely get a Mighty Mouse kind of vibe. Yeah, uh, from him. it's a very very. You know, he mentioned it is a kid's character. This is a this is not like a like a Superman or a Batman. This is more like a Mighty Mouse. But he's got a great name. Like that sounds like a good name for a god, Dinkin. Yeah, Ding, yeah I, I like it. So thanks for sharing that with us. Okay, this is going to be one last email, and this comes to us from our listener Maggie in reaction to I think this is after the listener mail episode we did about responses to our face blindness episode, where we heard from lots of face blind listeners, and some mentioned that they got symptoms of face blindness related to migraine auras. Now Maggie writes, "Hi guys, I discovered your podcast a few months ago and have been binging ever since. Thanks for giving me something that feels like I'm enriching myself as I go about my relatively mindless, tedious job. A good episode really." Makes Makes my day. I just finished listening to your episode on listener mail regarding prosopagnosia. Fascinating stuff. And the bit about migraine auras grabbed my attention. I've suffered from periodic migraine headaches since about 12. Anyway, I've got a less common type of aura for my migraines that I thought might interest you. I smell stuff that isn't there. It doesn't bother me except in that it indicates an impending episode. Actually, aside from the nasty migraine part, I kind of enjoy the weirdness of my auras. I can be whole states away from the ocean and suddenly smell salt marsh and burnt hamburgers. Huh. Or driving along and wow. smell an overwhelming odor of dead rodent and daffodils. This one was in the dead of winter with no mice in my car. My passenger confirmed no such smell. It's almost always an intensely powerful smell that's a combination of pleasant and unpleasant, bacon and skunk, rotting <laughs> meat and lilacs. Usually the combination is so bizarre that I almost savor the experience rather than focusing on the unpleasant notes to the scent. It's just trippy to know your brain is lying to you, but to really feel like it's true. I can't describe how uncanny it is. There was only one time this weird symptom was entirely pleasant, when I was changing an adult man's heavily soiled Depends, and all I could smell was the intense aroma of very ripe bananas wafting up at me from the diaper. Wow, that is uh, that is quite an image. She says, thank goodness for small blessings. It turned an otherwise unenjoyable chore into a moment of gratitude for my malfunctioning brain. When I have an aura, there is frequently a burning smell as one of the notes of the scent. A lot of the time, it's burned toast. Smelling burning is so common that when I do smell something burned, I usually ask anyone around uh, whether they also smell it. If they do too, I know I'm going to be fine. My auras can hit anywhere from 10 minutes to a full day prior to a migraine, but they're usually around one to two hours ahead. Now, Maggie actually shares a lot of other really interesting 
details about her migraine symptoms that I think we we might save. We've gotten multiple migraine emails that we might save for thinking about a full episode sometime in the future investigating what migraines are and all these interesting neurological phenomena they create. But I wanted to just focus for a second on the idea of these phantom smells and especially the idea of a burning smell. This is not just Maggie. I've read about this a lot. I mean, it's a very common thing you hear reported, so common that people almost make jokes about it, you know, not necessarily with migraine auras, but with any kind of neurological phenomena. Uh, people's – somebody makes a joke that you might be having a stroke. They yeah. say, do you smell burnt toast? Mm-hmm. Why is a, the burning smell so deeply associated with uh, non-neurotypical phenomena? If you got some, some kind of neurological event going on in the brain, we've learned to associate it with not just phantom smells but specifically burning smells. And I have read a little bit that this is actually something that's widely reported. Huh. Well, it kind of takes us back to our discussion of the of birds and uh, and fire and, and human history with fire. And yeah, makes me wonder about the uh, you know the the the, the, the survival um, advantage one would have in uh, identifying either the smell of wildfires or maybe later on the the smell of uh, campfires maintained by some other group of humans. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it just makes me wonder about like the ways in which. The, the typical chemical signature of something burning might be hard-coded to some kind of neural pathways in the brain. Yeah. Why is that so commonly selected and identified as a type of phantom smell among the millions that you could be identifying? And, of course, the, the other cool thing about this is that we're getting into just the phantom nature of smell itself. Uh, there's so much going on. We can, you, can, you can be walking down the street and, uh, and catch a particular aroma and it will be – It'll be like a thing that is not quite uh, like codified in your your head, you know, uh, but it'll take you back to something from your childhood, something you haven't thought about in decades. Yeah, uh, smell has this amazing power over us, and then when you you have that crossed with uh, migraine auras, uh, yeah, it's, it it makes for a rather uh, magical, uh, in some respects, experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's just it reinforces so well the fact that the thing you think with is not a thing that you can understand. The brain is a black box. The brain is the thing you use to understand the world, but you can't really understand how it generates the thoughts that you have. Do you think a migraine aura could also produce the scent of a really you know, sulfurous uh, fart? And therefore might tie into some of our uh, uh, examples that we discussed in our Fartonomicon episode of encounters, uh, either fart-based encounters or fart-based deterrence to demonic entities. Uh, I think you are going down a very fruitful path of inquiry there. (laughs) I think we should pursue that more in the future. But we have we have reached our limit for this episode. Uh, maybe even gone a little bit over, uh, which is which is difficult to avoid when we have so much great listener mail. Again, yeah. we we try and read everything. We don't have a chance to respond to everything, and we certainly don't have a chance to to read it all uh, on the podcast. But we do want you all to know that it is very much appreciated. Yeah, we really do love all the wonderful listener mail we get. Uh, so please uh, keep them coming. That's right. And as always, I do ask everyone for a little R&R. 
a little uh, rate and review if you have the opportunity to do so. Wherever you get this podcast, uh, give us some stars. Leave us a nice review. It helps us out. Uh, in the meantime, check out all the podcast episodes at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. If you heard us reference an episode in this listener mail that you haven't listened to and it perks your interest, then head on over to the mothership, to StuffToBlowYourMind.com and look it up. You'll also find links out to our various social media accounts uh, that you can follow as well. Thank you so much, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know what you thought about this episode or any other, to... Uh, uh, to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hi, or to maybe end up on a future listener mail episode yourself, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.